0: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show
1: number six. Gosh, probably about 50% of my hires over the last five years have come from my singular networking activity, that coffee. Either it was that person, or they knew someone that they could connect me with. And a referral is a great way to fill a spot on your team. Welcome to a real world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business.
0: Hey there, everybody. I am Jay Scott, your co host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, and I am here with the one, the only Carol Scott. How are you doing, Carol? Hello, darling
2: doing great today. How are you?
0: I am doing awesome. Glad to be here.
2: Good. So I have a fun little story that happened. So the other day I got a phone call from a friend and she said, I'm just done with my house. I've been with it for 15 years, but I don't feel like moving. I need to remodel the whole thing. So please, please, please. I know you're moving. So I need you to come over to my house and tell me exactly what to do with it before you head out of town. And I'm like, okay, great. You have exactly one option. I'm going to be in your neighborhood Sunday at 11, dropping off both my boys for different play dates. So I'm going to be there Sunday at 11. She's like, oh my gosh, I have so many other things to do that day. I'm like, don't know what to tell you. That's realistically my only option at this point. So it's like, okay, that's great. Sorry. Shouldn't have said anything. Just come on over. So we go over, we chit chat, we Lay out a whole plan of everything that she's going to do, and at the end of it, she was like, "Seriously, I have to apologize. I know I've known you since you're 18 years old because we knew each other forever ago." And she's like, "You've always been exactly this way. You decide what needs to happen. You figure out what your schedule is, and you basically tell everybody that." You know, I love you, but this is the time that I have carved out for you. And you either kind of fit into it or you don't. So, it was just kind of a good reminder that you need to really protect your time. You can you can say no, you can set boundaries, you can set parameters so that you can still be really effective and make the other person happy and keep yourself happy because you're not overcommitting.
0: I love that tip. Have to protect your time. And that is a great segue into today's guest, Jay Papazand. He is the VP of publishing for Keller Inc. He has written some of the greatest investing books on the planet, including The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, and one of my favorite books of all time, The One Thing. Today, he is here. He's going to talk about some really cool stuff. One, he's going to talk about communication and how we can communicate better to protect our time. So, Just like you were talking about protecting your time um, with your friend, he's going to help us all protect our times within our business. He's going to help us learn how to say no, learn when to say no, when to say yes, and how to provide tremendous value when we do say yes without spending too much of our time. And then he's going to go into some of his favorite hiring tips and he's going to tell us how to be better managers and better hiring managers when we're bringing people into our business.
2: And do you want to hear the coolest thing? He really explains how protecting your time in your business is really brought to a whole new level when you hire the right way, because they really have a lot of correlations with each other. So make sure you stick around for all those tips.
0: Yep. And if you want more information about today's show, if you want links for things we discussed in today's show, make sure you check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash six. And let's welcome to the show, Jay Papazan. How you doing, Jay?
1: I'm doing awesome, Jay. It's fun to have another Jay on the other side of this.
0: <laughs> Jay and Jay and
2: Carol in between. Thank you so much for coming on with us today, Jay. Great to talk to you.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm super excited.
0: So for those who don't know who Jay is, and I assume it's probably not too many of you, but let's do a quick recap of who Jay is. Jay you are the vice president of Keller Inc which is the publishing arm of Keller Williams Realty you are the co-author of a whole lot of books uh, some that our audience probably have heard of the millionaire real estate investor the millionaire real estate agent and probably your most seminal work the one thing so these aren't just best-selling books these are amazing books and Sometimes those two are, are mutually exclusive, but in your case, <laughs> both best-selling and absolutely amazing books. You're a husband. You're a father. I believe you have two kids.
1: That's right. And you got a 13 year old son named Gus, and a 13 year old daughter named Veronica, 14 year old son. Awesome, awesome,
0: super fun. And you live in Austin, Texas. What did I miss? What do you want to add to that little autobiography there?
1: Uh, I got a dog named Taco that rules our <laughs> life. So that's pretty much it.
2: Hi, Taco. <laughs>
0: So Jay, originally when we were planning the show, we wanted to talk a lot about hiring. I know you and I chatted a few weeks ago and you had mentioned hiring was a topic that you wanted to chat about. It was a topic that we wanted to chat about, but that was our first discussion. That was about six weeks ago. And that discussion that you and I had really made an impact on me. Basically, it it just changed my perspective on communication, the way you controlled the discussion, the way you kind of steered the discussion, the way you added value to me, and, and then ultimately the way you kind of I want to say this gently, but basically, you ensured that I didn't infringe too much on any of your future time. It was really amazing. And it's changed over the last six weeks the way I've approached communication with other people that reach out to me for conversations and the way that I network. So, if it's okay with you, I'd love to spend the first part of this discussion talking about communication, talking about networking, talking about some of the strategies that you employ. To ensure that you're providing tremendous value to others without detracting too much from your own time and, and your own bandwidth. Love it.: Excellent. Fantastic I in. This
1: is like stuff I get to talk about all the time, and I still love it. because okay. it forces me to live it, even on my bad days when I don't want to.
0: Okay, I'm going to start with That's a. Great. I'm going to start with a question that has driven me nuts for 10 years now, ever since we kind of semi-retired, started our own businesses. You seem to be really good at being able to say no. And a lot of people aren't good at saying no, but you're also good at when you say yes, putting boundaries around that yes. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you say no, when you say no, when you say yes, and how you put those boundaries around your yeses?
1: Sure, sure. And in all fairness, if I'm, I appreciate the compliment. That's a great compliment to, to have someone, for me, to have someone say you're good at saying no, because it's not always easy, but I find that there's two broad behavioral groups and most assessments would back that up there are people who are task oriented and people oriented and when we wrote the one thing the two thieves of focus that stood out is the inability to say no and fear of chaos so i happen to be task focused that's like i first go to like what are we doing and how are we going to do it not who am i going to do it with my wife is on the opposite end of the spectrum she's people focused and in my experience people who are people focused struggle with no People who are task-focused struggle with chaos. Like, I want everything to be neat and in order and in my control, right? So part of that is a little bit of natural behavior. But I also had to role model this as a business person. So the first step to saying no, especially if you're people-oriented, and a lot of people in sales um, in real estate are definitely people, people, is you have to know what you're saying yes to. And I think a lot of people haven't made firm commitments. So I think about, ask yourself, when was a time in your life when your whole world revolved around one thing. Maybe it was finals when you're in college, right? Maybe it was that three weeks before your wedding when everything had to happen by a certain time and everything was revolving around it. I remember when I was training for a marathon for the first time in 1997. I trained for it to quit smoking. I'd never, I think I'd run one road race before that, like in sixth grade. And suddenly I was thrown into the New York Marathon with three months to train for it. If I didn't get my mileage every day, Like I was doomed and I knew that. And so everything revolved around, when am I getting my mileage? I negotiated with everyone around you. So knowing what you're saying yes to is huge. That tells you what to say no to. And I don't like saying no. Um, I don't like saying no specifically to people on my team and people in my family and even to people I don't know so well. Like, so when you're on the phone with me, I tend to say things, whether it's phrased as a no or not, it's more like a not now Or yes, if you do this. That's great. So putting conditions around what you will do. The most common request I get is someone wants to write a book and they say, wow, you know, like today we were looking and I think this year we'll click over at 4 million total copies of our book sold. So we've got a bunch of bestsellers. Yeah. Like, woohoo, it's a big milestone coming down the pipeline. And each time we announce those milestones, someone in my network says, hey, I'm writing a book. Can I get some coaching? And I just created conditions around my yes. I wanted to be able to say yes to everyone just from a karmic standpoint because so many people helped me. But to get that time on my calendar, you one, have to formally ask for it, and then you have to watch a one-hour video that I created. After so many of these requests came through, I just created a pipeline where if you'll watch this video and then circle back and ask again, you'll get on my calendar. Wow. And it's amazing. Out of the seven people, I've got the, the stats pretty close. Out of about every seven people who ask me, only one will do that.
2: That's really powerful.
1: Yeah. So I'm saying no to seven, six out of seven people without saying the words no. And either that means the video is really good and answer their questions, or they couldn't be bothered to watch it and why should I bother to give them my time? So that's the that's one technique right there.
0: And I assume, well, presumably that that video is providing some value to you if they're listening to it. Um, It's also providing value to them, hopefully answering enough of their questions that they don't necessarily need to sit down with you or they don't necessarily need to sit down with you now. Maybe it's enough information that they can get started and they can push that request out two months or six months or 12 months.
1: Yeah, it pushes it into the future just right away. Like already, It's a it's got a factor where they have to do just something, anything. And a lot of people won't do anything. They have a, an instinct to ask, and there's no follow-up attached to it at all. So it filters those people out. But I actually, um, we have an annual convention mm-hmm. where we have, I think this last year, we had 227 individual breakouts around real estate and real estate investing at our Keller Williams conference. So for two consecutive years, I taught a class called So You Want to Write a Book. But I had the forethought to video record it. And that was all about the first time I got it mostly right. I got a bunch of people who had a lot of questions. The second time, a year later, I knew enough to kind of hear Here's like 80% of the questions people have. I know I'm going to get answered. So it's just like a big company would have a FAQ. Right here are frequently asked questions. I kind of figured that out in my world around my number one time request and created something that I didn't have to show up for to answer those questions.
0: That's great. People walk away saying, Jay helped me. He provided me the value I needed, and you didn't have to put in any additional work to do that.
1: That's right. And I didn't have, you. You. I nodded my head. So if somebody was watching the video on YouTube, I don't have anything in there that I think is particularly self-interested. It was really about how do I leverage my time better? I knew I wanted to say yes. So how do I say yes and it take less and less of my time going into the future? Got it.
2: I like that. And I think that's a really nice tip for our listeners, too. I guess whatever type of business you're in, you're always strapped for time, right? You always have people who have requests. And you, of course, like you said, you just don't physically have the time to do all of those things. So that's a great tip. If you can create some type of tool that will be helpful for your customers, for your vendors, for whoever those people are, then that could be something that's beneficial to them and you're not saying no to them. You're just saying, absolutely, but first you need to do this. And so it's a win-win all the way around.
1: You got it. I think there's, I want to credit, it's probably before that, but I can connect it to a book called Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. And he's a friend of mine. And when I interviewed him a long time ago, he told me about the 30 times rule. And he got, he got this from somebody on an airplane. And so a lot of times, like we're in business and there's something that we do really well and it takes us an hour every week, like some function of business, just call it widgets, right? We do widgets, we do it really well and it takes us an hour a week. The reason we never delegate that to someone else on our team, right? We don't say no to it by making someone else say yes to it, even if it's within our control, is it takes about 30 times as long as it takes us to do something, to train someone to do it as well as we do. And I have no idea if there's any research behind it, but I was like, duh, that makes total sense. Because every week, if you're thinking, why would I invest 30 hours to get an hour back? But even if it took you 30 hours to get an hour back, how many hours do I get back that first year?
0: Right, you get back 52. So it pays for itself. 22,
1: in 20, uh, 22 minus 30, right? Oh, right. So sure. yes. And the next year you get a full 52 back. So I think it took me about four or five hours to prepare for my one-hour talk, an hour to deliver it. So call it 10 hours to get back probably a weekly 30-minute call for me for the rest of my life. So it's the kind of math we have to do. When can we delegate it? When can we automate it? And it usually just takes, all right, I'm gonna make an investment. Just like, you know, bigger pockets is all about investments. We're talking about investing our time. Can I invest my time so that I get a lot of future time back? I think that's the way wealthy people think.
0: That's great. Now let me ask you a question. So I get a lot of people that they don't necessarily ask me, I want to write a book, or I they don't necessarily say, I want this specific piece of advice because we have a lot of stuff that we can give people. Unfortunately, we get Carol and I get a lot of people who say, we're doing the same thing you're doing. We'd love to take you to lunch. We'd love to just pick your brain. We value your time, but if we could just have some of your time, that would be tremendously valuable to us. And it's those people, it's very difficult to say no, because I remember when Carol and I were starting, we had people who, got we did the same thing. We said, they said yes to us and we've been very successful thanks to their generosity of time. How do you say no to somebody like that?
1: Well, I'm looking at my bookshelf and I've got Face Out, Negotiating Real Estate, Flipping Houses, Estimating Rehab Cost. So how much time do you think it took you to write those books?
0: Uh, probably about two years total.
1: So like, it's, it's a lot, right? It's a lot of effort. But now a lot of times you can say, hey, would you mind reading this? We're going to be talking about this. Would you mind reading this book? I invested two years of my life making this available to the world. That can become our baseline. For having a better, richer conversation. So I want to have a a better use of our time. Not just, you don't have to say the same 10 things that you always have to say because they're in your book. So again, anytime you can do that, other strategies, make an event, right? Make it an event so that instead of meeting one person, you can meet a bunch of people. That is a great Um, tip.
2: That's an excellent. We actually, I'm going to take this down to a personal level really quickly. We're moving, Jay, and (laughs) I think uh, I'm sorry, I just did that that. right right before my surgery last month. Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. And this, you know, I I never really thought of it in these terms, but it really, it's it's uh, it's really prominent on a whole life level, I guess. Too. We wanted our kids to be able to see the new school they're going to be going to, so we called the principal and we said we're going to be in town on this date. Is there any way? we might be able to come and tour the school for a half hour. Absolutely. Here's your half hour block. We're going to actually let you meet with the assistant principal. Two days before we got there, we received a phone call from the secretary and they said, you're actually going to be meeting with the principal, but it's your family along with seven other families. Because what they did, it was, we're like, wow, that's not such an eye opener from what you're talking about from an event standpoint. One person is interested. And of course, more requests, if you're in business or whatever you're doing, more requests are always going to be coming in. So if you have some time blocked out anyway, perhaps, like you said, you can create an event around it, get more people involved. So you're really maximizing that time.
1: There you go. So like maybe once a month, y'all hosted a happy hour for couples. Love that. People can show up, right? And they can bring you referrals. Like there could be a total win in it for you. You can say, look, once a month I get together. um, It's on this topic. Um, If no one RSVPs, we don't do it, but here's how you do that. And I know people who've turned that into a money-making thing, right? They can charge admission if you get into a a system where there's real value, but it's a way to leverage your time and still bring value. But by making it where that morning or that afternoon is only focused on that topic and you can reach more people, you're creating more legacy, right? You've developed these skills. You want to share those skills. Writing a book is a great legacy thing, but how can you reach a larger impact, a larger audience and have a bigger impact? That's the question you want to ask instead of it always being one to one business is going from I do it to we do it to they do it. How do you make that progression to be able to reach larger and larger audiences with your impact every single day?
0: That's great. Two things that stuck out to me from our conversation. First, you started the conversation. Well, you started the conversation. You showed up about 3 minutes late and you gave <laughs> me literally the most sincere apology that I've ever received for anything. You would have thought that you just killed my dog the way you apologized for showing up 3 minutes late. And that sent the message to me how much you valued my time and there was immediately a personal connection there. There was there was this is somebody who isn't just a random stranger who I'm looking forward to speaking with. I don't care if you were three minutes late. I was thrilled that, that we had a chance to talk and you basically demonstrated to me very first thing off the bat was I value your time. I value you. And, and that, that apology that stuck with me. Oh, cool. So thank you for that. First of all,
1: I didn't throw my kids or my dog under the bus. I, my kids <laughs> made me late or you know, whatever. That's good. That's good. I did a good job that day. Yes, you did. I
2: Jay, my Jay, husband, Jay. let me, let me just, uh, husband Jay, let me jump into Jay and just reiterate Jay Papazan. I've got to tell you, I've just got to reiterate everything Jay's saying. I remember when he got off that phone call with you and he literally came downstairs. He's like, wow, I just had the most impactful conversation I've had in years and years. And this is why, and these are the things he's done. So it truly has whatever, however long ago that was, it has completely changed the way My Jay, my husband Jay, approaches everything. So I'm so grateful. Is he doing the
1: dishes and laundry like I told him to?
2: Oh, absolutely. You get all all the credit. (laughs) You get all the credit. (laughs) So
0: so the second thing, I guess there are three. The second thing you did, and this is your tip, but I'm going to throw it out there because um, just for expediency, you'd probably get to it. But you started the conversation with, "How can we, we have a short time together. How can we best use this time to... In a, I don't remember your exact words, but how can we best use the short time we have together to benefit both of us? And so right off the bat, you kind of, you focused us. You forced me to think mm-hmm. about why are we having this conversation? I assume you had probably already thought about it yourself. And then you you basically created uh, a parameters around the conversation that wouldn't allow it to go too long or kind of just deviate into places where, where it wasn't being useful to either of us. And so I, I just found that tremendously useful. You're simply saying, how can we best use this short time together and, and strategic use of the, of the word short to kind of send the signal to me that your time is valuable as well. And I need to respect that. I love that.
1: Well, thank you again. And it's just, a, I think it's a function of over the years as our life, my wife and I's has gotten crazier and crazier. You know, I feel like my day is kind of meted out in tablespoons to quote the old, you know, poem, right? There's just a lot going on. And when I'm meeting with someone, I don't know, I really do want to know what's the one thing we can talk about that makes this a win? Did you have an agenda? Because if it aligns with mine, I, it's awesome. I'll start right there. If it's way off the reservation, I can reset expectations right off the bat. And that came from messing it up a lot of times. So for about five years now, one of my events that I lead people to is people want to get together. So on Wednesday mornings, I have a standing coffee date and I go to the same place. People have to come to me, but that's my way. I'm a super, like, I mean, incredible introvert. You just wouldn't believe like I can do this one-on-one. I can teach But it, you know, usually it takes energy, not gives it back. I like to be alone with a book or a fishing rod. Um, That's just my personality. But I know to be a business person, I have to network. So every week I try to meet with someone new and I can focus people on, hey, let's get together for coffee. Great. I meet on Wednesdays. I'll hook you up with my remote assistant and we'll find the next date available. But that becomes a thing that I can move people into. And those meetings, I never know who I'm meeting. That's how I started them off now. Because sometimes people have a burning question and they don't ask it till we're five minutes from the end. And then I feel really bad because like I got to go. Right. And so I just learned the hard way that I need to get that question up front so that we can at least set expectations about whether we'll get there or not. Or hopefully we can really provide value.
2: You touched on something. I think that's really crucial in there is that. First of all, I'm fascinated to know that you're an introvert. That is a major shocker <laughs> to me. That's I can't even get my head around that. But knowing that that is the case, there are, I think, a lot of people are, right? And there are a lot of amazing business people who just happen to be introverts. So I like how you said that you you set that expectation up front. What type of tips do you have for people who are introverts to get them out of their comfort zone so that they can get that maximum information, the best interactions possible? How do you get people to open up more and be more effective?
1: So... First off, if you're in business and you're not doing any, we call it prospecting, right? Prospecting is when I go out and I talk to my prospective customer and I find out what might and might not work. If I'm not in touch with the market, my business is going to suffer at some point. If I'm just doing marketing, I've got great spreadsheets that tell me what does and doesn't work. But getting in the trenches with people is a lot of times where the magic happens. That's where you find partners, future employees, all of those things. So if you're an introvert like me, it's not a should I, it's a must do, period. So find your strategy. Going to conferences is not going to work for me. One, I have to leave my family. My kids still want to hang out with me. I just don't want to do that yet. I don't like meeting tons of strangers. I get more value. So you get to pick your poison. But you have to do something and you have to do it regularly. Doing it whenever you think about it actually doesn't yield a lot of results. My little one coffee a week over five years has actually added up to a lot more than just one person added to my database each week because it's compounded over the years. It forced me to create a newsletter to stay in touch with those people. It's created events. When people want to keep coming back for another one, I can say, hey, I'm having to get together on this time. So I don't have to do another one-on-one regular inputs, right? Regular investments in that thing really add up over time. So I would just say, pick something that matches your personality. For me, it's one-on-one. If you're an extrovert, then, I mean, my wife, it's like, it's not Coffee, it's like millionaire mocha's or millionaire, you know, margaritas. It's more of a party atmosphere for her. But if she does that regularly, it adds up. And her business is about, I want to say, 70, 74% referral-based. And you know, she did over a hundred million in volume in real estate last year. So it's not a small business. And she's regularly getting it. We throw movie parties, we do things like that. How can I get face to face with my potential customers and partners on a regular basis? So I don't know exactly where all you want to go with that question, but that's the first thing that came to mind.
0: That's great.
2: I love that. The consistency is huge. It sounds like a really big key to making that happen.
1: Yep. Yes. Just sticking with it. A small dose of it every week adds up to a lot more than you think.
0: That's awesome. Okay. I want to get to the third thing that you did in that conversation that that kind of really stuck with me. You said, what can I do today? To help you, what is your, do you, do you have an ask for me? And again, I don't remember exactly how you said it. I wish I did. I wish I would have recorded it. Um, but you basically <laughs> you, you you gave me you gave me permission to ask something of you, and it was great because I, I actually had gone into the conversation asking, could I invite you onto the show today? But you opened yourself up there. So how did you know, or what would have happened if I had made an ask that was something that you didn't want to provide or something larger than you had the bandwidth to provide. I I imagine just giving that opening to people, and I assume you don't give it to everybody, and I thank you. But how do you ensure that that opening that you give to people doesn't ultimately infringe on your personal time and, and, and bandwidth?
1: So I'll just confirm a couple of things. I don't offer that to everybody. That's something I kind of feel out. When I feel like, you know, in these meetings, right, the calls or the coffees that I'm in the presence of someone who has wow, this is a pretty cool individual, right? I love the fact that y'all are a husband-wife team. I, I don't find a lot of entrepreneur, in our industry, it's, real estate is fairly common, but outside of that, it's not. So I'm always looking for other role models to learn from. So when I find enough dots there to think, okay, I feel like I'm fairly in alignment, I'm willing to make a deeper investment in the relationship, I will still set parameters on that, right? People will say, will you write a forward for my book? Will you give me a testimonial? And the answer is always gonna be no, We have 160,000 associates in Keller Williams. You would not believe how many of them want to write books. And if I start giving testimonials and writing forwards for people who aren't even in our business partnership, how do I say no to them? And so I usually offer different things. Can I give you advice on marketing it? Can I bring you onto our podcast? I have a set series of things that are easy yeses for me. And by the way, if I invite you onto my podcast, who's gotta do that? It's not me. It's Jeff. Jeff runs my podcast. So I'm actually got a standing yes from him if I think a person is of quality. So I guess it comes back to I kind of know in advance what I can say yes to. I'm open to other conversations, but I don't usually say yes on the spot if it's new. I'll say, hey, can I think about this? And it's real. And it's, y'all have a great built in um, governor for that. You know what? My partner is my spouse. Can I chat with them before I give you a firm yes? Like I would love to say yes. But can I chat with them? So I have two people like that in my life. One's my wife, Wendy, who's my business partner in all of our real estate businesses. And then I got Gary Keller, who's my business partner in my publishing businesses. I have two people that if I'm investing my time outside of those relationships, could have a negative impact. So what's good about that, you're a real estate investor, right? This is an offer contingent on my partner's approval. Absolutely. Right? It's a standard practice. It allows you an out. Right. It allows you to test the waters and still have an out. Same thing here. You can do that with everything you do. You just have to be aware of it.
2: That's great. So, yeah, so it's not even that in a negotiation, like you're saying, just bring it down to your personal interactions in your daily life and how you how you relate to people. I like that a lot.
1: That's, yep. that's great. OK, I've got some curbs, right? I've got some the 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 bowling lane has got walls up against it. Right. So I can know kind of what I'm going to say yes to and no to. There's people relationships that I find interesting or beneficial. There's direct, I mean, I'm in the publishing business. Y'all have a podcast that that raises you up. You have a platform that can help my partners, right? You just have to know, what am I looking for? If you're wandering around with no notions of what you'll say yes to, you'll say yes to some bad things. So again, it comes back to what am I willing to say yes to and kind of do I have some rough parameters for that?
0: That's great. So before we move on to the next part of our show, let's hear from one of our show sponsors. Real estate investing is known for a lot of things, mainly making a very select group of people a whole lot of money. But being an online, cutting-edge experience is usually not one of those hallmarks. Well, thanks to Funrise, that's no longer the case. Funrise is the future of real estate investing. Their revolutionary model is transforming the industry, thanks to their software, which cuts out the costly middlemen and removes old market inefficiencies. Fundrise delivers the kind of investing power you typically only see at the big institutions and can now bring real estate's unique potential for long-term growth and cash flow to individual investors like us. Getting started is simple. And usually takes less than five minutes. When you invest with Funrise, you'll be instantly diversified across dozens of real estate projects, each one carefully vetted and actively managed by Fundrise's team of real estate professionals. Then you can use their intuitive investor dashboard and real-time reporting system to monitor the progress of each property in your portfolio. Now that's the future of real estate investing. So are you ready to get started? Then visit funrisecom BP business. That's F U N D R I S E dot com slash BP business. And you'll get the first three months of fees waived. Again, that's fundrise dot com slash BP business.
2: Small business owners wear a lot of hats. And while some hats are really great, others, like the filing taxes and running payroll hat, yeah, not so great. So that's where gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll taxes and managing a team actually easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Oh, and you can even get direct access to certified HR experts, too. 90% of customers say switching to Gusto was easy. You can do it in less than 10 minutes. And if you're thinking, oh, I already work with tools like say QuickBooks, well, get this. Gusto can integrate with those platforms so you can keep everything in one place all online. So listen up for this offer. Because you listen to BiggerPockets Business, you get three months free when you run your first payroll on Gusto. This is one hat, you're going to be glad you gave up. So try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com slash BPB, like bigger pockets business. Again, that's gusto.com slash BPB.
0: Okay, I appreciate you kind of taking that detour with us. Um, I know on our discussion,
1: wow, huge.
0: When, when we were talking about uh, this show and and I I think I asked you if you had a topic that you would like to kind of delve into to help our listeners and you had mentioned hiring. And so I would love if, if you're good with it, I'd love to uh, to spend the, the rest of this discussion talking about hiring. And we have a lot of listeners that I imagine are on the cusp of hiring employees, have thought about hiring employees, maybe have hired their first employee and they've either had successes or failures with it. And I think given your background, I know speaking with you previously, um, you have a tremendous amount of expertise and experience with hiring employees. So if, if it's good with you, I'd love to, to take the rest of this discussion and talk about hiring.
1: I love it. And it's actually to me, the moment you begin delegating, it's another way that you're saying no, right? It's a way that you're investing your time. Um, if I can teach someone over 30 hours to do my one hour task as well as I do it, a lot of times they're going to do it better. Right, As an entrepreneur, it doesn't mean you're better at all those things. It just means that you're very invested in making sure that they get done. You don't have a janitor. You are the janitor. If you don't have a call coordinator, you're the front desk person, right? But you'll do those because you're the owner. And at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. So it doesn't even mean you're better. You're just invested. So getting those things off your plate so you can do really highly dollar productive activities. That's another, I mean, this whole conversation around hiring is what are we saying yes to and what are we saying no to? So to me, it's perfectly in line. That's great.
0: Love that. So can you take us through how many employees do you currently have, uh, whether it be at Keller Inc., your publishing company, or within, I know you run a very large real estate team on your real estate team. Like how many, give give us an idea of scale of your businesses and how many people you've hired over the years.
1: Sure. Right now, I think uh, I'm in charge of all content for Keller Williams. So I've got our publishing team, I've got our course writing team, and we have a video team. So it's about 34 people in all. That's a recent development. I had a team of about seven that was focused on publishing. um, And recently I got uh, the two new departments. And so for me, that's all about do I have the right interim leadership or leadership in place? So I don't have, I mean, I can't have 34 people reporting to me. That's untenable. But I can have five or six people you know, Ideally, three to seven is kind of the the, the the range where you can have really great managerial leadership relationships. If I have those people in place between me and the larger group, we're all good. So that's what I've got in my day-to-day. My wife runs our real estate team. Um, we have about 20 sales agents across five cities and five full-time admin in that group. And I don't know, hiring, it comes in spurts, right? You have like right now, I think I have five open positions I didn't have but one open position for the previous six months. Um, The thing I'm committed to doing, because it's something that you learn, is you know that there are some core critical positions, right? Admin talent, sales talent, creative talent, and all of my networking activities, right? First and foremost around, do I have a bench of people I can reach out to, either to fill those positions if my people leave, or who might know the people that would fill those positions, So when you think about building your database, we say around here, your business is your database. There's a database that you get business from, and there's a database that you get hiring from. And talent, whether it's contract or full-time. And so making that a discipline um, is huge. So I would say, gosh, probably about 50% of my hires over the last five years have come from my singular networking activity, that coffee. Either it was that person Or they knew someone they could connect me with. And a referral is a great way to fill a spot on your team. I have no idea how many people in the last 18 years I've actually hired. It's not hundreds, though, right? It's probably less than 100, but it's up there. I've had a lot of those conversations, and it's something I try to do regularly. It's just to stay in the practice.
2: Great. So following up on that with your coffee conversations and the interactions that leads to, would you say that you have found a lot of people who overall you just know they're a good person for your company or they've just got a great talent and you create roles for them? Or would you say you um, you more intentionally fill specific roles and seek out the person to fit into that role?
1: Both. So every year uh, my wife and I do a goal setting retreat. We get out of the house. We spend at least one night um, someplace without our kids, without our dog, without any chores. Sometimes we just get a hotel downtown off Priceline. Sometimes we travel. And one of the things that we look at, and we now see speaking events. So many people asked us about it over the 12-something years we've been doing it. We actually have an annual event that we host, a goal-setting retreat for couples. Because so many people wanted to learn from us, we just made it an event. But one of the things that we always identify is who are the people missing in our lives? And we call it our missing persons report. And that's stolen straight from our KW playbook. And like this year, like I know my wife has got a personal assistant on her list. And we talked about who is it we're looking for? What are we looking for? I was looking for a writer and an editorial director. And those are things, whenever we have a new position, we sit down and say, who is this person? Who are we looking for? So we both can have our eyes out on the streets. So if that person shows up, you know, I have my missing persons report. Oh, wow, this person might be a match. So I'll give you an example. One of our team members, Kalen, who works on our podcast and training team, her partner who moved to Austin to be be on our team with us, I never really spent a lot of time with, but he always volunteers at our events. He just shows up to help out, like super helpful guy. He said, I hear about your coffee thing. Can we have coffee? I was like, great. Well, for almost a year, my wife and I have been wanting to start a new business and we were missing the hoop. We wanted to start a construction business around maintenance and homes. She sells about 300 homes a year how many of those home sales before the sale or after the sale have some work to do? A lot of them. them. Yeah. So there's just a a natural extension and we pretty much have made one contractor. We just start 50 to 60% of his business, period. So why wouldn't we naturally think about that? But we didn't have the right who and we'd interview a few people. So I'm sitting down with Brent. We start talking and I only know him as a guy who helps people with their internet marketing, setting up websites. He's like a tech guy in my mind. And he works with some big people. And I was like, we're getting together. I have no agenda. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, in California for 12 years, I was a carpenter. And I was like, oh, that's nice. interesting. And then he starts walking me through this journey of getting tired of being so tired on the weekends when his friends came back from their Internet jobs. Right. He was exhausted, just want to lay on the couch. And they wanted to go out and go surfing in the afternoon. He's like, OK, I need a new job. So he lived in a van, taught himself programming outside of a programming school, actually got on the news for it and then went on to do this internet marketing thing with a whole bunch of people. I'm like, wow, that's a really weird set of skills to have together, craftsmanship and internet marketing and business consulting. And so he immediately became the candidate and we ended up hiring him to start this business. But it wouldn't have happened if we didn't have a missing persons report. Like who are we looking for in general and what's our ideal skill set, right? And it just happened to show up. But if you're always on the corner looking, you'd be surprised how often it does show up, right? That we had a list, we knew who we were looking for, and we were always looking for them.
2: Very cool. When you and your wife identify, well, when you do identify these people in your missing persons report, do you go through and really hammer out what the details are of not just that role, but the specific types of things you want those people to do?
1: Uh, A little bit of both. So this is a Gary Kellerism. Like if I say something really smart, just assume Gary Keller or my wife taught me, right? And we won't have to say this again and again. I don't like to take credit for things (laughs) I didn't come up with. Um, But when we talk about job descriptions, right, a lot of times it's pretty sterile stuff. You have a long list. And Gary taught me many years ago to flip that. He said, what are the three things if they don't do well, you'll have to fire them? And that's, you're flipping the whole conversation. There's all the things that you would love for them to do. Now, what is it that if they don't do well, you're going to have to fire them? They get you very clear. And I, we usually rank those three things, one, two, three. And that gives us a sense of who we're looking for that would have those core skills. And that becomes a big governor. We also, sometimes, if we're really active in the search, I will literally muse about what kind of background this person might have, right? Right. You know, when I was looking for my editorial director, I was like pretty clear, like I would love for them to have actual publishing experience, not self-publishing experience, but like maybe they've worked in New York or Chicago at one of the big houses. They understand that process and you just kind of muse through that, those things. And I keep those very private because you can't say I'm hopefully looking for a single person who never wants to have kids. Well, that's great as an employer, but it's completely illegal, right? You can't screen for that. Right. So what you're thinking about is what does the ideal candidate look like? What do they talk like? But that actually becomes what you share with a friend. Hey, you know, I'm looking for someone, you know, who knows a lot about construction. Maybe they've been a project manager on a construction team. Maybe they've been their own, had their own carpenter business or handyman business. But we also need someone who's a business person, right? They understand what a P&L is, or at least are willing or interested in learning. Like that dialogue was shaped by the missing person report. But when you ask for something fairly specific, that's how your network knows how to respond. That's great. Otherwise, they would just be looking through the yellow pages and sending me a bunch of names of handy persons. And that might not at all be a good use of our time. I want someone who's who's good with construction and has potential to be a business person. And that little thought process narrows a lot of screens, a lot of the candidates out.
2: It does. It becomes your little elevator speech, like you said, to your network to find those right people rather than using that as what you're specifically looking for when you're interviewing that person. Right. It's just like you said, that is your little pitch when you're looking for that person.
1: Well, if you have a good pipeline of candidates like, all right, here's the thing. I'm not a great manager. I think I'm a better coach than a manager. I don't like all the details. I don't like project management. There's a lot of that stuff that I'm not particularly good at. And you look up and you say, what fixes all of that? If you hire a great, talented individual, you can be a crappy manager because they're going to be self-managed, right? They're going to be self-motivated. You don't have to motivate them. So investment on the front end and having a great pipeline to have the opportunity to attract great talent, that's 90% of leadership right there is getting the right person on board.
0: So that is, I love that. And so I'd love to delve a little bit deeper into sure. that front end uh, that front loading of of ensuring that you have great candidates so for every position you're going to have a list of technical questions that are specifically related to does this person have the skills to do that job but then there's going to be a whole bunch of other questions and and information that you're seeking about the person in general their level of motivation their their level of ability to to take initiative things like that are there specific strategies or even specific questions that you will ask potential employees to kind of gauge whether they fit in well with your team, whether they're going to take that initiative on their own, whether they would just make good employees outside of the, the specific technical skills that you might be looking for for that role.
1: Yes, 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 yes. So probably before I started at Keller Williams in 2000, I bet Gary had already invested five or six million dollars in trying to perfect the hiring process. We called it recruit select. Um, today it's called career visioning. And we have, I want to say a five interview process. And there's a lot of screening up front. So again, let's take that three-part job description. If your number one is, I don't know, writing, right? That's like for this writer. Like if they can't write well, then why would we even be considering them? We usually don't just talk to them about it. We have a test. So we gave every person who's ever applied for a writing job a very similar writing assignment. So every job position, we change it a little bit, but it's the same assignment for every candidate now we compare all of their products side by side. And believe me, when you have 100 people submitting a five page essay on how to do a 1031 tax deferred exchange or whatever it was, that was literally one of ours. I was like, let's pick something really detailed and boring because they might think this is a sexy publishing job. I want them to know that there's hard work involved. And if they can't do it right, then they don't even get it. They don't even get to the phone screening. So some people will say, I'm a published author. I don't need to do that. Awesome. You can apply elsewhere.
0: So great. You're basically giving people the opportunity to self-select themselves out
1: of the process. I'd rather say no to 10 good ones than hire one bad one. That's right. Same principle of investing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. There's no way to avoid that house with a nasty surprise if you invest in enough houses. But you want to do everything in your power to avoid it. You'll walk away, walk away, walk away so that you can really get the great deals and not get a bad one. Same thing for people. So it starts with a test. One of the things we do very late in the process, we call it the group interview. Um, we have the core team show up and we just have a lunch and they get a chance to hang out with that person and get a sense of who it is that they might be working with. And they get veto power. So we do that. Um, we do kind of a biographical interview where we go all the way back to their last education and we ask them, what did you do? Right. What was their job? What did you learn the positives and negatives and what did you earn? And so we just walk through that chronology. So it's a different way of going through their, their resume, basically. But now I have them at the whiteboard or the flip chart, and they're drawing it out. And I get to sit back and listen to how they talked about their previous job interviews. What do they learn? Are they, I mean, to me, it's really valuable to have a learning-based person. So are they learning on their journey, right? What is their career trajectory? They're telling me what they earned, and I usually annualize it, right? If they made fifteen bucks an hour and worked forty hours a week, that's about you know thirty thousand a year. So we can annualize it. Is their trajectory going up or is it going down? I like to catch people on the way up, right? If at all possible. And so we have that, and we have another one called the motivational interview, where we try to say, "What's really important to you?" It's a it's too long to explain here, but it's a what's really important to you? Why is that? What does that mean to you? How does that make you feel? I mean, people sometimes will leave, cry in this interview, but my whole goal is if they're looking out five years in their life, telling me what they think is most important to them right now, if the job I'm offering them is going to prevent that from happening, they're going to leave me. So we need to exit the process today. So they don't know it, but we have a built-in process that allows them to interview us. And if the alignment's not there, why are we going to do all the hard work of training someone? getting them a computer, getting them set, I mean, all of that just so they'll leave us in two years. I want people who are going to be around. So we've got a very involved process. I would say involve others. Um, Y'all are a husband-wife team, right? So you can take anyone on your team, give someone on your team veto power. Absolute veto power. And it sucks to have to go back to the drawing board. But again, if someone else comes in and you can't convince them that this is a yes, then you shouldn't be hiring them.
2: Yep. No, it's going right. to be a big time waster for everybody. It's a time waster for that candidate. It's a time waster for you. It's a time waster for the entire team because you're going to be back right at it, doing it all again, like you said, two years from now. And what that's no good for anybody, right?
1: Oh, so, it sucks.
0: It, it reminds me of the advice we give with contractors people don't realize that the worst case scenario with a contractor isn't that they slow things down um, and that they have no impact. The worst case scenario, obviously, with a contractor is they have negative impact. They cost you more money. They cost you more time. They take you backwards. They they destroy the quality. It's the same way with a bad hire. A bad hire isn't just a waste of time. It's potentially a waste of money. They It's a potential uh, bringing down the morale of the entire team. It basically sets you back. So it's not just a bad hire is is something neutral for your business. It's something that can be actively negative for your business.
1: Oh, it costs you goodwill with your customers? Yes. Really good employees will leave because of a bad employee that hasn't been caught being bad yet. Yep, that's right. We do an exercise called the cost of a bad hire, where we created about 15 different categories and asked people to add it up. And one of the the times I taught that I taught it to Alma Draft House. It's a dinner theater place where you go in, you watch a movie, they have a bar, they have a restaurant, whatever. And one of the guys in the audience did the exercise and said, "I can tell you very factually that I hired a waiter that cost us $350,000 minimum."
2: That's a and great And when people exercise do that math,
1: oh yeah, they just don't the stakes are high. So again, there's no infallible process, right? Just like in investing. There's no way if you invest in enough houses over time, that your process will be utterly infallible. Like sometime you're going to get a nasty surprise. But hopefully you've made so many good decisions, you can recover from it. It's the same with hiring. Invest in a process that minimizes your chances of bringing someone bad on board and maximizes your chance to bring someone good on board and then live that process. Be faithful to it. Give someone veto power. We have a defense. At the very end of the process, I walk in. I have Gary, I have like right now, if I hire a writer, I'll have Garrett, our lead writer at the table and maybe one other person. And their job is to say no. And I have to convince them otherwise. Their default answer is no way. We're not hiring this person. And Gary laughs. He goes, you're looking defensive, Jay. And I'm like, I'm feeling defensive. Good. That means the process is going right.
2: It's working how it's supposed to. It's working how you mapped it out and you're following it along so that you're finding those good employees, right? You're saying no, 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 until you find that one that is just the perfect person. So once you get that perfect person, those best employees, what do you do to retain them? What do you do to strengthen your team together with that person? What are some tips you have to make sure that you keep that person as long as possible so you're maximizing your investment with your people?
1: Love that. It's a great question. I would say the first thing is not the hiring is you've brought them on board. Congratulations. You're up for now a 90 day interview. So remember those three parts of your job description? One of our disciplines is the first 100 or 90 days, depending on who you ask. It's 90, but a lot of people call it the first 100 days like a presidency. Can you test for those three things? Can you create assignments to make sure that the person you thought could do those three things can actually do them? And at the end of that 90 days, you get to celebrate. So I think one of the first things you can do to ensure longevity is inspect what you expect right off the bat. Say, hey, I love Carol. I love the fact that you joined our team. I'm so flattered that you would join our team. So our first 90 days is our extended interview process. Here are the three things that I want you to be able to do at the end of this 90 days. I'm on the hook for training you how to do it, making sure you have the time and resources to do it. You're on the hook for doing it. Or failing in such a way that I know that you can do it. Right. Either way, it's a win. But if you look up and say, wow, these three big objectives, I'm going to hate doing my job, then you're in the wrong place. We can very quickly eliminate it. Sometimes we don't know until we do the job. But this now becomes our exploration. So first off, right off the bat, select a period of time. Don't start bonding with them and inviting them to your house for family dinners. Keep some emotional distance. Like the number one mistake people make is we fall in love with our candidates. So step back for a little while longer And see if they are a good fit. I've had people who looked awesome show up and were absolutely a cancer on the team. You know those people who are great at managing up, but the moment you leave the room, they're nasty to the waiter or to the hired help, or just to the people they perceive to be less politically powerful? I've hired those people. They're really good at hiding it, Mm -hmm. but they can't hide it for 90 days. Most people can't do it. So beyond that, you just need to make sure that people have a career path. Do people, do you understand what it is they want from their occupation? What is their reason they're here? What are they hoping to fulfill? And are you helping open those doors for them? Because if your job is closing doors in their personal life, they will leave you. So how do you earn the right as a manager to know what's really important to them? Maybe they're training for a marathon. Maybe they want to have a baby and they need the security to know that their job will be waiting for them. How do you earn that level of trust so they tell you what's actually important in their life, not just their job? so that you can make sure that their job is fulfilling that. Yeah. And I don't do that for everybody. I mean, I don't want to be a barrier to people's lives, but the people who report directly to me, that those leaders, I need to be in their business. I need to know where they're going, where they want to go. And if their expectations are way off, I need to reset them. But if their expectations are fair, then I need to be willing to answer the question, hey, boss, what would I have to do in order to earn the right for X? That's a script. What would I have to do in order to earn the right to X? That's a test of whether you've got a fair employer. If they can't answer that or say, I need time to think about that, but everything should be earnable. And it could be a crazy task, but you have to put it out there. And so you have to allow them to feel like they're making progress in their life. Um, I don't want someone who just wants to hide in my job and feel security. I want someone who feels like they're progressing because guess what? If they're progressing, who's getting progressed to? Everybody.
2: You
0: got it. Yeah, That's great. And um, there was an implication there in your examples of uh, maybe you have an employee that wants to run a marathon. Maybe you have an employee that wants to have a baby. There's an important implication there that this isn't just a conversation that you want to have when you hire somebody. It's not even a conversation you want to have once a year at a performance review. This should be an ongoing conversation. This should be a conversation you're having every month or every week or every two months, whatever it is, because people's lives change. And we get so wrapped up in ourselves when, as managers that we're focused on the business, the tasks, driving the business forward, that we lose sight of the fact that these are real people that we're dealing with. And it may be that somebody on your team since last week, they've had a major change in their life. Maybe something's right. happened with their family. Maybe something's happened with, with their spouse or their children. And, and so as a manager, it's our job to have these conversations constantly.
1: I would agree with that and we have a again formalize it. So for 18 years every week I create what's called a 411. Uh-huh. I have mine right here, right? Um, I do it electronically and I carry it with me as a bookmark in my notebook. So I always can have my goals right in front of me, my annual, monthly and weekly goals. Well, I meet with my key staff members on a weekly basis and we make sure that their priorities are aligned with the company priorities. So Annual reviews, like if I have to wait till the end of the year to give you the bad news, I'm doing a horrible job. What we get is a weekly rhythm. It's a short, quick meeting. What are your big rocks for this week? Right? What's your 20%, your one thing? What do you need? Do you have the training? Do you feel like you're empowered to do it? What you learn very quickly is if you ask, what are you going to do this week and the next week, they know you're going to ask, how did you do? People will know that you're paying attention. And if they're not actually accountable and they're not actually wanting to do the work, they'll self-select out. You don't even have to be a bad manager. So, Jay, I, you said you were going to do another five podcasts last week. I see that you do, too. How do you feel about that? I'm not putting any judgment on it. Right. But if over five weeks you're happy doing less than 50% of your goal, I'm going to comment on that. I'm going to say, look, for the last five weeks, you've been doing two out of five. Our goals are way off. How, do you, how are you going to make up that ground? And we get to have that conversation. And hopefully it's not you being the mean boss, th- thumb on the head, all of that. It's just you're there to mirror their performance. And either that gets very uncomfortable or it's very comfortable. And it's in those conversations where we also find out, well, Jay, the reason I did too is we just had a baby. I didn't tell you this, but you know, he's not sleeping through the night, or she's colleague, or whatever. It's like, oh well, gosh, okay, that makes sense. When do you think you can get back on track? How can we support you? But if you're not having those regular conversations, you're probably not building trust and you're not building accountability.
0: And I love your point about no judgment because um, we take business, we all take business very seriously. And sometimes it, it can be easy to take an employee that's not meeting his or her goals to take that personally and think, "Okay, they're not helping me meet my goals. And again, without having that discussion with them, maybe there's a good reason for it. So instead of judging, just having that, that, that factual, that, uh, that that objective conversation.
1: I do judge like I'm human. I do judge, but our rule is to come from curiosity. So I'm going to ask you before I judge you, if you say, Oh man, I've been catching up on game of Thrones. I'm going to be like, dude, (laughs) I love that show too, but your priorities are messed up. We're not here to pay you a salary for you to watch Game of Thrones. So we need to get back on track today, right? But I'll start with curiosity, because what if there is something legitimate I don't know about? And I think a lot of times, um, there's a great book by Shane Parrish. It's only in audible form now. It's called The Great Mental Models, but I, I can't remember the name. It's not Occam's razor. It's another razor. But it basically means don't prescribe to malice what could also be prescribed to ignorance. Yep. And a lot of times we're walking around thinking people are just being really mean to us. Oh, that person cut me off. You know how hard it is to actually cut someone off in traffic without having a wreck? It would take really good driving skills and a lot of premeditation. They just didn't see you. But we go straight to this other emotional place. So as a manager, as a leader, can we first come from curiosity instead of judgment? You can judge later. And it's actually appropriate because that's one of the ways we get people that aren't really Pulling their weight out of the organization is to bring accountability there. But start with curiosity, just to be perfectly clear.
2: Start with curiosity. That's a that's just a great tenet right there. Start with curiosity.
0: I love it. Okay. Um, I I could honestly I could have this conversation for the next four hours, but I want to be respectful. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. So I'd like to jump, if you don't mind, into the last segment of our show. We call it the four more. And it's where we, it's where we ask you four quick questions. And then at the end, we give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about you and where we can get in touch with or find out more about you and what you're doing. So, uh, Ms. Scott, Mrs. Scott, would you like to take the first question?
2: Oh, I would love to. Okay. Jay Papazan, what was your first job ever or your worst job ever? And what lessons did you learn from it?
1: So, first job was also kind of my first business. I first started earning money by mowing the yards. And we wrote about this at the end of The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. Most people don't get to page 400, though. So, I'm probably not, it's a spoiler. It's not a spoiler for anybody. The, uh, I remember I was going out of town. I had about four lawns and I needed someone to mow them while I was going to be gone on our two week summer vacation. So, I think there's a kid named Larry and I got him to mow the yards. And he said, how much do I get for this? And I told him 10 bucks, 10 bucks a yard. And then I went home and started feeling really guilty because I was getting paid 20 bucks a yard. And I went to my dad and I said, was that wrong? And he goes, no, that's a business. You did the work of having the opportunity and now you can, it's a win for him because he was getting no income. And if it's worth it, him to say, yes, that's his decision. So you don't need to feel guilty about that at all. That was, it took me many years to appreciate that. But later in life, I remember we spent two weeks in the French Riviera with my extended family. Like every three years, we try to do a big family trip, my sister's family, my mom and dad and our family. And my wife was in a great place with the real estate business. And so for almost two weeks, she almost just virtually didn't work at all. We did a few emails in the morning because we were the first people to get up. And I remember on the plane ride back, I said, how does it feel to be a business owner for two weeks? instead of someone who actually has a job in their business. She goes, it felt amazing. I said, you got a choice. Do you want to go back to being in your business or do you want to stay on it? And at that time, she had to think about it. She goes, you know what? I think I will go back into it. I think there's more growth that I need to be involved in. I wish there had been someone there back at 13 years old to say, Jay, now that we're back from Florida, do you want to go back to mowing those yards? Or do you want to go hustle for more yards and find more Larry's to mow them for you? you know, I mean, what that that would have done for me then, but that was my first job. And I learned so many great lessons. And one of them was, wow, this is what succeeding through others can look like. And it's amazing. It's so amazing. You feel guilty when it happens. That's awesome.
2: And that's cool that you learned it. You didn't even realize you learned it, but at the age of 13, you learned that. So that's awesome that you got to carry that through your life.
0: Okay. Next question. What's an opportunity either in your personal life or your business life where you had to say no and in retrospect, you're glad you did. It was a difficult decision at the time, but in retrospect, you're glad you did.
1: Um, I had an opportunity to take a C-level position or I perceived an opportunity to take a C-level position here at Keller Williams. Gary was talking to me about the position. I was asking questions around it. And I remember going back home and talking to my wife and I said, this would be a big jump in my income, but I don't think I would love the job. And I, you know, I said, if I don't jump at this, they might perceive me as not being ambitious. But I remember saying no to that. I did not throw my hat in the ring. I gave recommendations for other people. And I knew at the time I was like, oh, this could be a dead end. But saying no to that executive position allowed me to stay in the publishing lane. And if I hadn't stayed in the publishing lane, we wouldn't have written the one thing. That's good. That was a life changer for me. So I'm very happy with that decision to stay in my lane of my core competency and my big opportunity now, which is just as big as that one was, is because of the success I had by staying in my lane and building those skills. That's fantastic.
2: I'm grateful you said no, personally, because I don't know what we'd all do (laughs) without your book. So thank you for saying no to your C-level gig. All right, I'm going to take the next question, okay? So what is the worst advice you've ever been given or some worst advice that's common in your industry?
1: And what did you do with that advice? Oh, gosh. Um, And I had an answer. Um, Oh, gosh, there's so much bad advice. (laughs) I think that it's not even so much per se advice. I think there's a cult out there of I can do it better or this only works because I do it. And I just think it's an argument people make so that they can feel like they're in control, that they're riding it on their white horse every day, but it prevents them from actually Enjoying owning a business. So I'll go back. I said earlier, when we talk about business, it goes from I do it to we do it to they do it. And business ownership is they do it. You have a job until you get to that place. And I just think that whether it be, I just see this a lot in real estate, that the the energy it would take to raise up the people around us to replace ourselves systematically is a skill set that most people don't have or are unwilling to learn. And because of that, they're going to have jobs for the rest of their lives, whether they, they call themselves business owners. I call them um, self-employed, right, to use the Robert Kiyosaki, you know, they are very self-employed. And if they stop working, their business stops, too. So being great at what you do is awesome. At some point to run a business, you have to be great at succeeding through others, and I don't know why people buy into and they feed this idea that, oh, Carol, you're so good at this. How could you ever be replaced? They think they're creating a compliment. What they're doing is perpetuating a system where we have to have our hands on things versus succeeding through other people. So that's probably very much a product of this call. But that, that's definitely something, number one mistake I see people make.
0: That's great. Love that. Okay, final question. What is something, again, either in your business or your personal life that you've splurged on and that was totally worth it?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, The things where we spend the most money, and we're pretty good about being investors, right? Um, Experiences in food. And so I've looked at it. We do it our budget annually. And we always say we're out of budget when it comes to our, we have a Wednesday night date night, a standing date night. And we're very much consistently out of budget there. And our travel, but I have no, I'm an experience this kind of person. So that time with my wife, that regular time, and we just got back from New York with the kids, right? And those experiences with our family, never regret them. And some of them, like we took the kids to the Galapagos Islands, I guess, three years ago. And that was a crazy expensive investment. Like it was like an investment property we didn't buy. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I both know when you go out 30 years on those kinds of investments, that's yeah, we might have spent, you know, X amount of dollars, but over our lifetime, if we had the opportunity cost of that decision could be hundreds of thousands. Still no regrets. Magical, magical experience. And I just kind of know if I'm willing to overpay for experiences I get to share with the people I love, I'll do it every time.
0: That's great. And and I love the fact that, and I'm not going to presume to have any idea what your net worth is, um, but you, you made a point that even people that are high net worth individuals, and 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 again, I'm not presuming anything here, um, but you still do budgets. You do budgets for date nights. You do budgets for your experiences, and and that's that's really important in any family, regardless of what your financial situation might be, because it it's it's just an indication of what you value. You value uh, having that money to pass on to your kids or for other things in the future.
1: I'm not good at budgets. I don't like budgets. What I'm good at is. If we invest X dollars out of every paycheck, out of every every month's income, if we're consistent in how we invest our money, everything else takes care of itself. And all we have to do is live within our actual boundaries for the money that's left over. So invest first, pay yourself first, set aside money for future investments, live within your budget. Those are just the two disciplines. I don't like tracking my money. I've done it way back in the beginning. We got rid of our credit cards. We did everything on cash. We did that until we understood And could track mentally so we didn't have to physically track anymore. It's kind of like counting calories. You do it long enough. I know that Lagunitas IPA has got like 550 calories. It's much better for me to take a lager than to go for that awesome idea, right? (laughs) Guinness. Oh, my gosh. Who knew Guinness was like 70 calories? It's like right up there with like the super light beers and it's got flavor. You get a sense of what is costly and what's not costly, and you try to live within those boundaries. But yeah, we set goals every year for our net worth and how much we want it to grow. That's why we've been able to grow it consistently. That's awesome.
2: Because you stay on top of it. Yep. Awesome. Okay, Jay, here is the more question. Where can our audience find out more about what you're doing and connect with you?
1: Sure. So everything about what we're currently focused on is on the one thing.com. So that's the within number one. You can link to my social media accounts. Like I'm actually active on Instagram. That's like my guilty pleasure. It involves pictures, not words. So I can do that. But all of our activities, we have goal-setting retreats, we have mid-year retreats, we have four-one-one training. I talked about how our rhythm is. We have a whole community that's dedicated to weekly goal-setting and how we stay on top of our goals. So all of that's on the theonething.com.
0: That's awesome. Excellent. Thank and, you. And I'm embarrassed to say I was going to hold up a copy of The One Thing, literally one of my favorite books of all time. And we're in the process of, we're moving to Florida in about two weeks.
2: Packed already. And, oh, there and I go. It you go. You can kind of see it behind
0: and, me. There you go. I literally packed it last night. Uh, Anybody that hasn't read The One Thing, I would love to invite you back in a couple years. I'm going to give you some time. Again, I want to respect your time, but (laughs) we could talk about that book uh, into perpetuity. So Jay, thank you so much for all of your insights today, both on communication, networking, hiring. This has been absolutely fantastic. We really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. I'm glad to be in a relationship with y'all.
0: Thank
2: you so much. Thank you, Jay. It's been awesome. Thanks again.
1: Thank you.
0: Okay. I think I'm in love. I want to be his best friend. What did you think of that show, Carol Scott?
2: You don't want to just be his best friend. You want to be him. I, Let's be clear. It's pretty obvious. You are wanting to be Jay, the other Jay. You want to be the other
0: Jay. Every time I talk to him, he changes my perspective on communication and how I should be managing things in my life. And I, I, he makes me a better person. I really mean that. As a business owner, he makes me a better business owner. He makes me a more effective business owner. He makes me a better person. So I love that conversation. I love that interview. And I can't wait. Hopefully he'll he'll talk to us again in, in a few months or a year or two.
2: I know, right? He's just amazing. And I've got to tell you, my most powerful takeaway was that whole nugget about creating consistent events no matter how introverted or extroverted you are, right? Just figuring out something that really suits your personality that you can do over and over and over. And that builds over time to create your network and that it just works in so many different ways for you. I think that one that one tip was, it was just magical. I'm thrilled that we got to hear from, from just directly from him and we can start doing that. It's awesome.
0: Alrighty. Okay, I think we're good. Do you have anything else to add? Let's just wrap it up, baby. Okay, She's Carol. I'm Jay.
2: Now go create an event to start your networking today. Have a good one, everyone.
0: See you, everybody.
2: Bye.